Alright listeners, whoever you may be, we are here with uh, Clay Spinuzzi, the chair, the Associate Chair of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, for some background here, he received his PhD from Iowa State University in Rhetoric and Professional Communication in 1999 and has spent nearly 20 years making uh, amazing new academic work here at the, at the university. In that time, he's built up quite the name for himself with several publications which have won awards such as the James L. Lufkin and Nell Ann Pickett Awards. One of his more recent works, which we'll get to in a moment, discusses the blank space and the rhetoric of early stage entrepreneurship. Dr. Spinuzzi, it's wonderful to get a chance to sit down and speak with you. Would you like to give us a little bit about yourself, anything we might have missed? Uh, sure. I, uh, I'll just say that uh, for the last 25 years, I have been going to organizations, mm-hmm. following people around, watching what they do, asking them questions about it, picking up their texts, and using these to, to build a big picture of how they communicate, coordinate, and cooperate in their organizations. It's always fun. I tell, I tell people it's, uh, it's not always interesting to work. It's always interesting to watch other people work, and that's the job that I've been blessed with. And do you keep a lot of that to early stage entrepreneurship or what, what kind of uh, fields do you like to get into with that? Uh, right. I started out uh, looking at how uh, software developers work. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to traffic safety workers. Who else? Uh, telecommunications workers, freelancers, office professionals, uh, co-working spaces. And in about, I think, 2012 or 2013, I started looking at entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's all very different kinds of work. Entrepreneurs in particular, are uh, they're all about risk. So, I mean, I have the safest job in the United States right now. I'm a tenured professor. So I'm not about risk, but I, I like watching other people take risks, figuring out how to process it, figuring out how to do it better. So that's what, that's what has been getting me out of bed since 2013. Now, Dr. Spinuzzi, I'm glad you jumped right into the meat of the conversation here about the central focus of your research career, which is organizational communication. However, for a lot of our listeners, myself included, the the prime example that we have for understanding organizational communication uh, typically is the show The Office. So, you know, when we think of organizational communication, we think of maybe Michael ordering Dwight around and riffing jokes. But is it more than that? I sure hope so. You know, the the thing is, the office is about a really small organization. So they uh, they spend a lot of time talking directly to each other. Uh, they don't spend so much time over email or phone calls. When you get to a larger organization, a more departmentalized one or a more spread apart one, it's it's not easy to just walk down the hall and, and talk to somebody. So what we what we start seeing is a lot of slippages between departments, between uh, uh, different areas of the organization. A lot of people, uh, let's take let's take the telecommunications study that I did. It was a 300-person organization, and some of these people worked more closely with their counterparts in other companies than they did with the people down the hall. So you start getting some real weirdness in terms of what sorts of communication people expect, what sorts of assumptions they bring to uh, uh, different communicative communication situations, what kinds of strategies that they use. And uh, watching those slippages is always the most interesting thing. Being able to, to detect them, to figure out what's happening, and to talk people through what could you do differently. 
And now, thinking about our audience again, uh, when we're talking about large telecommunication companies that operate or communicate through, you know, large systems of power, branching systems of power with bosses and managers and all different kinds of employees, a lot of the students listening and a lot of the people that may be interested in taking your classes have not worked at these large organizations because the nature of their work is changing, right? We work remotely now. The younger generation can work entirely digitally. Maybe we freelance. And I understand that this shift has become a focus of your research recently. Oh, absolutely. You know, when, um, when I finished my second book on the telecommunications company, I started looking for something else to do. And I just happened to hear somebody talking about opening up uh, a co-working space here in Austin. It, it turned out to be the first co-working space in Austin. And I thought, I mean, that, that sounds really interesting because uh, the, these people are able to work out of their own homes or in coffee shops or wherever. Why, are the, why do they want to pay $200, $300 a month to work in an office with other people that they're not affiliated with? So diving into that was just fascinating. It turns out that there's a lot of reasons, like they uh, they're extroverts and they, they're just slowly dying in their house or they get up to answer an email and then they look up and it's it's noon and they're still in their pajamas or they t- try to take a phone call and their dogs start barking. So there's the, they, they still have to figure out how to interface with other people, how to create their own workspaces, how to how to create their own systems of interacting with other people. And it turns out that it's, it's harder and harder as work gets more and more distributed. The stuff that we see with freelancers or people working in co-working spaces, though, those things are also happening in offices. The, the fact that information is so cheap to circulate now, instead of, let's say, typing a memo and sending it through inner office mail, you can just text somebody or send them a Slack. That, that means that we get... Uh, a greater velocity of information. We get more information floating around and we get information that goes directly from from one high level of the hierarchy to another one. So in talking about these concepts, we actually uh, now move into the topic of uh, a book you recently published called All Edge Inside the New Workplace Networks. And it kind of gets at and it analyzes how technology and you know the recent trends that you've described are actually changing the way organizations communicate and get things done. So that the concept of all edge, can, can you explain that for us? Uh, sure. Um, let's take uh, an organization in the 1970s. Uh, the communication was more expensive. They, nobody had email. Few people had phones on their desks. So to get information from one part of the organization to another, it made sense to set the people up in hierarchies. They work in divisions. Uh, they report to the people above them, they report to the people above them, and it filters up to the top. That has its problems, uh, and we, all, you know, we kind of all know about these problems. As uh, we started getting uh, better telecommunications, digital communications and organizations, it made more sense to start networking across those groups. And because of that, everybody was sort of at the front line of communication. It's not like your boss talking to somebody else's boss. It might be you talking to somebody else in the organization and more frequently, more and more frequently, people in another organization. The other trend that, that we saw at the same time is that companies started outsourcing non-core functions. Just a quick example, in the mid-90s, I was working for a computer manufacturer 
and uh, I happened to, ch I was writing software documentation. So I was chatting with the one graphic designer on staff. She did the covers for uh, the, the software manuals. I said, how do you like it here? And she said, you know, I get kind of lonely. I'm, I'm, I'm the only graphic designer here. I can guarantee she's not lonely anymore because they have outsourced that job. Graphic design is not a core part of their organization. They've uh, given it to another company or to a freelancer to do. So when that happens, the boundaries of the organization weirdly get a lot more porous because you have to start working across the different organizations to get things done. Uh, you start organizing work not by divisions, but by projects, and those projects tend to be temporary. So you have to work with people you don't know, you have to rotate leadership among specialists during the life of the project, and you have to, um, uh, you have to develop a swift trust across these, these members. At the end, they disappear, or the, the little organization disperses. It might come back together again, but probably not in that same composition. And I also know that you've studied examples of entrepreneurship and mentorship here on campus. So we're going to transition here now into talking about the most recent article that you co-authored with David Altunian and Gregory Pogue. And Pogue is the director of the IC Squared program here at UT Austin. And this paper was presented at a conference in July of this year, correct? And you studied a program called SEAL. So can you explain that program for us? Sure. SEAL is a Student Entrepreneurship Acceleration and Launch. And the idea is this. Suppose you're a student, you've come up with some idea that you think is going to change the world. In this particular case, it's a technology-centric idea. For instance, you're, uh, oh, one of the guys we looked at was, uh, was a computer science major at another university. He was uh, vacationing with his wife in China. He was kind of deadbeat because they had just finished traveling. And he was like, okay, I want to call down to room service, but will they understand me? I don't speak Mandarin. And he thought, man, I wish I just had Alexa here. I could talk to Alexa, Alexa could translate it, and then I'd get my room service. And so he thought, that's a great idea to start a business with. SEAL is about taking an idea like that and figuring out if there's a business you can build around it. Because the idea itself doesn't do much. We've all probably had ideas where we're like, yeah, somebody should do that. The question of who's going to do it and whether they can find a market for it, whether they can make it, put together a business model to make it successful, whether it solves somebody else's problem, those are all, uh, those are all sort of open questions. We were just talking before the microphone turned on about The Simpsons. You may remember The Simpsons episode where Homer finds out his long-lost brother is the CEO of an auto company. And his brother is like, you know what? Homer's an everyman. I'm just, just design a car for Homer and it'll sell. And what they got was a, a car that Homer loved that nobody else wanted. Okay, so entrepreneurship, you, you always have to worry about that. It's like you're solving your own problem, but have you solved anybody else's? SEAL was a way for them to take that idea, road test it, to find out how to run a business, and by the end of nine weeks to make a decision, do we go or is it a no-go? Is it something that we should, we should actually execute and build our business around, or should we just write it off? That guy in particular discovered uh, a couple of things. One, yes, he could, he could build this, and there was some interest for it. But number two, he would have to position himself as an aqua hire because honestly, 
Amazon has has a, a track record of just duplicating what somebody else has done and then pushing them out of the market. Uh, don't tell Amazon I said that. Uh, and, and he he eventually concluded, you know, I don't actually like the business side of being an entrepreneur. I'm not ready to do that. Programs like this help people translate or transform their ideas so they can be marketed, but it also transforms the people from innovators to entrepreneurs. And if they can't make that double transformation, it's better for them to know now rather than after spending a lot of VC money. So that's what SEAL's about. And I want to hone in on the rhetorical element of the study. And specifically in the study, you wanted to see how the pitches changed from how the entrepreneurs initially pitched their idea to how they pitched the ideas after they went through this mentorship program. And so my question is, why exactly is pitching an idea to investors so important for entrepreneurs? And why is it important to study? You know, uh... That is the part at which they're the most nakedly persuasive. They're persuasive throughout, but at the pitch, they are, they are actually asking people for money. There, there's something that entrepreneurs like to say, if you want advice, ask for money. If you want money, ask for advice. And uh, so the idea is that at that point, when you're asking someone for money, they have to really tell you what the truth is. If you came up with an idea for some sort of product, and you told, let's say, your parents or your cousins about it, they would probably go, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea, because they don't want to hurt your feelings. If you want the truth, just say, all right, well, can you write me a check for $1,000? And you will find out what they think of your idea. Okay, so I got a little off track there. What the, uh, the importance of the pitch is, is that they have a lot of different arguments that have to pull together to form one larger argument. And those arguments are things like, I have a product that is actually solid. I have a problem that it's actually solving. I have people who are really concerned about that problem. It's a, it's a pressing problem. It's not just something theoretical that they feel like they should do something about. And I have a team that can execute that. So that's a lot of moving pieces. They all have to be shrunk down into four to 12 minutes. And that's the pitch presentation. For our listeners out there that are thinking about starting a business or maybe have already started a business and they need access to resources that will help get their idea or their business to the next stage, what should they look for in a mentor based on what you observed in this study? Okay, so a mentor is going to have to have a few different things. One, they're going to have to have some understanding of the the field or content that they're working with. So for instance, in the program, they were assigned mentors based on whether they were working with water technology, energy technology, or a couple of other specialties. They need to be able to know what the field is, how people make decisions within that particular field, and hopefully they, they, they can network you with people who are going to be interested in that particular area. So that's number one. Number two, they really have to have an idea of how businesses run in general. With these early stage entrepreneurs, they're, they're typically uh, people with a good technical idea, but they don't have a really solid way, a solid idea of how to build a business around it. You have to be able to build a business model that's sustainable. You have to be able to find a market that can pay off in, in a reasonable point of time. And number three, they just have to be able to mesh with you. Now, the thing about mentorship is that it's really unstructured. You know, you hang around, talk with somebody, and they, they'll drop pearls of wisdom, but it's not like they have a process. 
And one of the things that we found was that because of that, the, the persuasive element, how to develop a claim, how to hone it for a particular audience, was sort of, it, it was unevenly mentored. Some people get, got a lot of feedback about this, others got just a little bit. One of the things that we saw here, which was kind of a repeat of uh, some of the things we've seen in earlier research, is that when people are having trouble making their argument or you know making the pitch, they tend to transform their claim for value in one of four different ways. One, they might just tweak the argument. They just come up with a better argument that involves the same audience, same problem, same product. Number two, they might change the application. So for instance, that maybe there, here's a separate case Greg Pogue looked at in Portugal. This guy had come up with an algorithm uh, for uh, managing wind farms. It turns out to be very, very complicated because you know, you've got all of these all of these sources of energy and you have to be able to kind of tie them together. He wanted to uh, clean the clean energy sector. The problem was that the clean energy sector and the energy sector in general tends to be really slow moving. So they knew they could get a sale within five years, but they only had enough money for, let's say, one year. So they pivoted to financial services. Same algorithm, completely different problem, tied together ATMs, but it was a, a sector that that would move right away. And so they were able to, to remain liquid. And that was a pivot enabled by the mentorship, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, third one, uh, design. Uh, you're, you have the same problem, the same audience, but you change the physical design of whatever you're trying to pitch. Uh, and then fourth, financial model. You know, you're dealing with the same problem, audience, same technology, but you figure out somebody else who's going to pay for it. A uh, really quick example of that, um, uh, Greg was looking at an automated pill dispenser. They wanted to market it first to individuals, individuals wouldn't pay. Uh, then to, let's say, nursing homes, nursing homes didn't have the money for it. So then they started marketing to hospitals, and hospitals have uh, a very strong legislative incentive for making sure that people take their pills correctly. So they got the hospitals to pay for it, just figuring out that that kind of model super important the people will typically if their argument's not working transform it in one of those four ways a mentor should be able to help people and guide them through it but these mentors tend to be working on experience not on you know not on research not on theory so they might not be able to name these different moves Dr. Spinuzzi, you'll be pleased to learn that we actually recorded a conversation in our classroom about this, this specific paper. And in that conversation, we talked about things like mentorship and how the SEAL study applies to entrepreneurship and startups in the real world. And so we have some quotations from students in that class that we're going to play for you now. And we were hoping that you, know, you can add some context to these quotes and hopefully answer those questions. So I'm going to hand it over to our moderator, Nick, now, and he's going to introduce the quotes, and then Dr. Spinuzzi, you're going to listen to them, and then hopefully formulate a response, uh, and afterwards that'll spark additional questions, and we hope that this process can, you know, reach some conclusions, help answer those student questions, and also help graduate students and undergraduates listening to the episode better understand the information. Okay. Which brings some light into the whole situation for us. 
Alrighty. Um, so uh, we have a couple of quotes here, as Kaysen said. These mostly have to do with different points in your article that we were discussing, kind of like a first, second, third kind of thing, but they don't necessarily mm-hmm. go in a chronological order. The first one we have is from a Sydney Jones. Not sure you met her. She has worked at a startup, and her idea here is that a key problem for entrepreneurs is creating a product they believe in, but that also adds value to a customer. Yeah. All right. And I'm going to play this cold clip for you. I work in a startup, and I think that, like, the problem that they have when they're doing, like, ideation and product development is there's this line between, like, you should always create a product that you would want to use, but then you also are trying to please, like, you need to show that it will have a value add, like, in a business perspective, like, it needs to be able to make money, but then it also needs to add value to, like, the consumer. So if I could briefly restate what I think Sydney is saying is, how do you have a business that you yourself believe in, that the investors believe in, and that consumers believe in, and how does rhetoric play a role in that? Okay, there there is some research to back this up. The research literature on pitches suggests that one of the things investors and, and other audiences of pitches look for is passion. So they want to know, are you passionate about your idea and are you passionate about business? And this is sometimes really separate from the idea itself. There, some, some of the people quoted in, in some of the research articles say things like, well, I'll fund somebody even if I don't believe in their idea if they're really passionate. And you can kind of see why from a, a VC perspective this would be the case because you're, you're looking for somebody who will work 18-hour days and eat ramen for a couple of years to get something off the ground. So passion, you know, passion means that they are going to work as hard as they can to make, the, to make your money work for you, uh, which sounds a little exploitative now that I say it out loud, but there it is. Uh, one of the things that we find sometimes, uh, uh, I had a, uh, I edited a, a special issue on entrepreneurship communication for IEEE transactions on professional communication, and one of the articles, they looked at this disjuncture between uh, when uh, uh, student entrepreneurs thought they were passionate and what the the audience saw, and it turns out that sometimes people are passionate, I mean, they're it's they're, they're burning in their hearts for this idea, but the audience just doesn't see it. So in rhetorical terms, what, what I tell people is that you have to be able to perform your passion. You have to be able to not only feel it in your heart, but be able to express it. And that seems really inauthentic sounding that you have to be able to, to, uh, uh, to kind of re- rehearse being passionate, but it's kind of important. It's, it, it, people can't read your mind. Um, so I agree with Sydney. I think passion is, is a really big part of what's going on in early stage entrepreneurship. All right. That's, um, that's great. Uh, we have another uh, comment from a classmate called Kendall. Kendall has talked about how all these startups came from a very different field and how they all mm-hmm. like uh, come together in this one place, this, the SEAL program. Yeah. And uh, she wants to know a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to put in play for that. invasive species and zebra mussels and then a different one's about like a shower alarm clock and I feel like these are um, you know they're kind of odd areas of study and so like if you're a mentor who knows a lot about marketing or business even in the tech 
tech industry, maybe you don't know about zebra mussels and the environment. And that would you know, be a difficulty when you're advising them to their market. So Kendall's question gets us back to our earlier conversation about mentorship and how it's important to have a mentor that can, first of all, serve the needs required of a certain industry, but also have the business knowledge to get different ideas off the ground. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's, it, it's always interesting to see the interplay between those. Uh, I, I mentioned that uh, uh, the Austin Technology Incubator, or ATI, uh, actually I didn't mention, they were the ones running the SEAL program, and, I, and they you know, continue to do so every summer. They have uh, incubation categories. One of those is water technology. So, so, they, so for instance, if the, the guy who was working on the zebra mussels, the guy with the, the uh, shower head, they were both kind of lumped in the water technology uh, area. Now, these are two very, very different applications, but uh, the, the, uh, the mentors in that group knew enough to sort of get them started. More than that, they knew how to make the next moves. That is to say, uh, they, they'd look at the technology, they'd, they'd talk about the value proposition, then they'd say, okay, well, you need, you need to specifically talk to these sorts of people. If you're not sure who they are, here's a way to research them. I will reach out through my contacts and see if they know anybody. If a friend knows a friend, who knows a friend? And so there's there's a sort of big network uh, 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 network game where they th- theoretically know somebody who's doing something like this. Those were two really uh, th- those two uh, water tech companies were really really interesting uh, because uh, well uh, one example the. Uh, the guy who's working on invasive species in lakes, uh, he he uh, uh, he had been working with cancer research, so he knew how to sort of transfer that knowledge over to the technological problem. Uh, in terms of who to talk to, he had some idea. There are agencies that manage lakes, but uh, he ran into a problem about halfway through SEAL. Uh, his, his technology was really well set up for early detection of uh, invasive species. And that's great because if you detect them early, like really early, then there's ways to remediate without killing all the life in the lake. So, and it saves a ton of money. If you wait and, uh, until you can actually see the zebra mussels in the water, then you, you have a full-blown invasion and then it's much harder to remediate. So he thought the value proposition was, we're gonna prevent this from happening. And uh, what he found about halfway through is that people would say, well, I mean, I think that's a good idea, but, you know, we don't have the budget for it. And uh, what uh, my co-author, David Altunian, who's running the program, was able to say to him was, well, what you have is a vitamin. We're all told we're supposed to take vitamins and it'll keep us healthy. And you're like, well, like 20 years down the road, I won't get osteoporosis. That's great. Do we take our vitamins every day? Most of us don't. What, what David said was, what you need to find is an aspirin. And that's where you, know, you have a, a splitting headache and you will pay anything to relieve that pain. So he, he said, what you need is to start dealing with eradication. And it turns out that for eradication, people pull from a different pot of money. It's much easier to access the money. Now, I think it's better for everybody, if they can detect this stuff early, 
But what he realized is that if all he did was early detection, he was going to run out of business. He decided to pursue both of those and really make a big deal out of eradication. That became his central value proposition. And so in your answer to Kendall, you're kind of saying that the mentor did not necessarily have to know the ins and outs of how to eradicate invasive species. Right. But what they did need to know is which crucial pivot to make in order to get that business to the next stage. Another element of going to an incubator is to actually learn rhetorical skills. And in your article, it seems like you mentioned that SEAL did not necessarily present or teach rhetoric by the book. They didn't teach it in you know an ordered fashion. I believe the word you used were implicit versus explicit. Yeah. So can you elaborate on that? Like, should incubators take something from the study and say, oh, well, right now we're not really doing things in an organized fashion. We need to recalibrate and actually teach the fundamentals of rhetoric. I think they should. Well, I mean, obviously, I think they should listen to me and <laughs> take something from the study. Of course. Absolutely. I, I think uh, this is something that 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 really struck me as I was sitting and watching them give these different workshops on these different things, business fundamentals, marketing fundamentals, working on a team, developing a pitch presentation. All of these uh, had sort of an implicit understanding of the sorts of rhetorical strategies people might use, but very implicit. I don't, I don't think any of the speakers could have named them. Ditto with the mentors. The mentors had all of the experience to draw from but they didn't really have a framework to really talk about. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have a framework, what you tend to have is learning by, by mentoring, learning by apprenticeship, and that means that you watch somebody else react to things as they come up, and then you, you do things similar to what you saw. Uh, you know, it's see and do. There's not enough theory, there's not enough framework for them to sort of conceptualize what's going on. So when we get back to, let's say, those uh, pivots that I was talking about, th those are all rhetorical moves, but they're not obvious to people. And when you have a new entrepreneur who's just trying to figure things out, they'll get stuck because they won't know what their options are. I do think that the more we can structure that discussion of persuasion, the more the more foundation people are going to have for, for making those sorts of decisions. Mm -hmm. Alrighty then. So we are coming kind of close to the end of the interview. Great. Uh, looks like they're about to kick us out of the sound booth, in fact. <laughs> uh, it's been a great time talking to you, Dr. Spinuzzi. And if there was any final things you'd like to add, Professor Kaysen? Actually, yeah, I have something to add. So we noticed that in doing uh, research for this podcast that you, have a, you run a master's program, right? Mm -hmm. exactly. So I was thinking... You know, we're talking about pitches and persuasion and rhetoric. I was wondering if you wanted to make your own quick elevator pitch uh, to people out there who may be listening, who maybe have discovered this podcast episode and are thinking, wow, Dr. Spinuzzi seems like an interesting guy. I think I might want to join his master's program. That would be quite the feat, I think. Yeah. Uh, the HDO, the Human Dimensions of Organizations master's program, it's a 15-month program, and it's a professional program for uh, working professionals. Uh, so these are not people who are going into a standard uh, graduate program. These are people who have been out for a while. They have their own careers, but they feel like they need something new to take them to the next level. And that next level might be a promotion uh, or a shift in job or just some other sort of leveling up. And rather than going to, say, an MBA, which is about money and figures, 
they come to the HDO program, which is about understanding people better. So they take courses from some of our uh, professors in psychology, sociology, religious studies, comparative literature, and of course me in rhetoric. And they get an idea of what all of these different liberal arts and social sciences can help them to do in their organizations. At the beginning of the program, they have a vague idea of some sort of problem that they're dealing with at work. By the end of the program, they've written a capstone in which they have uh, solved that problem or moved that problem downfield, and they, they leave the program with better tools for how to deal with problems like this in the future. It's super exciting. Uh, we've been, I think we're on our uh, seventh or eighth cohort now, and they're, they're always fascinating people. If, if, you have, if you have some disposable income to spend, I recommend it. Well, I think that was a good way to sort of wrap things up in describing the program. I'm certainly uh, interested myself now. All right. So if anybody's got $20,000 in 15 months lying around for no reason, and they're looking for something amazing to do with their lives, head over to Dr. Spinuzzi and he'll help you out. Other than that, it looks like we're out of time and we're uh, ready to go. So we're going to wrap things up here. Thank you, Dr. Spinuzzi. Thank you, Kason, of course. Uh, thank you, myself. Uh, somebody else say my name, please. His name's Nick. There you go. <laughs> anyways, uh, uh, that's it. I think we truly got you to admit that you're a rhetorician type. But anyways, uh, that'll be it. Signing off. Goodbye. All right. Really appreciate it. This podcast was created by Nick Ramirez, Kaysen Hunwick, Aaron Anaya, and Olivia Speed with comments from Kendall Haas and Cindy Jones. Thank you to the DWRL, Professor Mark Longacre, Professor Clay Spinuzzi, and Will Burdett. The opinions expressed on our podcast belong to the speakers alone and not to the Department of Rhetoric and Writing or the University of Texas at Austin.